things. So if you don't know what baptism is, this is, this is for you. Uh, in short, baptism is the outward sign um, of what's happened in our heart. The outward sign of what's happened in our heart in, tonight in the heart of Hannah. Um, we're soon going to hear a story about how she's come into relationship uh, with God, with the creator of the world. And the Bible makes it very clear that uh, although people are intended to have a relationship with God, each person has chosen to uh, reject God and the relationship that he offers to us. In this way, people have chosen uh, to live for themselves and not to live for God. People have chosen in this way to elevate themselves as king and uh, relegate God as non-king in their life. And God's word makes it perfectly clear that when people do this, when people actually reject God or they turn their back on God and they kind of ignore him, when they do that, their relationship with God kind of gets broken. And their rejection of this sin, the rejection of turning away, needs to be somehow dealt with. It's got to be dealt with. And in order for people to actually return to a right relationship with God, they need to have their sins forgiven. But the amazing love of God is this, that instead of leaving us separate from a relationship with Him, He sends His Son Jesus into the world to die upon the cross. And when He died on the cross, He was, in effect, receiving the punishment every person deserves for their sins, for their rejection of God. He died for our sins. But then three days later, He rose to life and now is the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. And whoever believes in Jesus, whoever turns to Jesus and believes that He died for them and receives the forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death on the cross, can now enter back into relationship with God for all eternity. So baptism is the outward sign that a person has died to living for themselves, died to their old ways of life, and has received forgiveness for their rejection of God. Forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. So tonight we're going to see Hannah and... Uh, She's going to go down into the water. She's going to go under the water. Hopefully come up again. But the symbolism is that as she goes down, she is dying to her old way of life. But then she'll come out of the water. And when she comes out of the water, the image is like rising to new life. The image is also one of being washed, purified. Washed and purified. So through faith in Jesus Christ, we can all be washed clean of all our sin and forever restored to relationship with God. And baptism just shows that uh, a person loves Jesus and they want to live the rest of their lives for Him. That's what it is. I'm going to ask um, Hannah to come up and share about her, how it's all gone down for her. So why don't you give her a warm, encouraging a round of applause. She asked me and my cousin to say a prayer after her. To me, it seemed that I said that prayer every time I was at her place. I didn't get why I needed to. I went to church. My parents were Christians. Didn't that make me one too? I started school in Melbourne at Heathdale Christian College. Having Christian teachers was really great. You were taught things much differently than you are at public school. My family and I moved to Ringwood before I started year two. Not many kids at school believed in God, but our neighbours were new Christians and they became our best friends, so that was really good. In year three, we moved to Beechworth. The whole God thing got a lot harder then. In year four, during RE, the boys used to call me Hannah Christian. Because of that, I didn't like to bring up God very often. 
When I was in year five, my family started coming to Wodonga Baptist. I enjoyed kids' church, but never really took it home with me. In year six, I was part of a close group of friends. I had a lot of fun times with them and a lot of hard times as well. Either way, I idolised them. They were all I was concerned about. I didn't like coming to church because it meant that if I had a sleepover on Saturday night, I had to be picked up early in the morning. I still prayed, but it was mostly when I wanted something or when I had had a fight with my friends. God didn't have much of a place in my life. I think that my life changed in a big way when I started high school. My group of friends from primary school pretty much fell apart. I was a bit of a loner and I was feeling pretty down. After my first week at Youth United, I invited a friend, Shaden, to come with me. At first, we kept quiet at school about where we were going on a Friday night. Later on in the year, something inside me clicked. I recommitted myself to Christ and got really into it. Youth United became the highlight of my week. It made me feel so great to know that I could go there and hang out with other Christians. There are so many people here that have had a major influence on my life. This year has so far been awesome. I feel that God has been with me everywhere, which is exciting. Now I really enjoy telling my friends about my relationship with Jesus. I get so excited when they respond positively. When I found out that Shaden had become a Christian, I thought that is so cool. I played a part in that. Many times I've struggled with feeling jealousy towards my friends. They have the latest stuff, cool clothes, money, freedom. Then I noticed all the little things in my life that I was taking for granted. A lot of these awesome things many of my friends have never experienced. On the last night of the Commonwealth Games, my family and I were in the city with some close friends. Altogether, there were 18 of us. It was about 10 at night and we were ready to get home. There had been some train complications, so we had to wait on the platform for quite a while. I'm scared of trains and I was sure that we were going to get bombed or something would muck up and we were all going to die. During my time sitting at the station being paranoid, one of our friends asked me what was wrong. I told him and he said to me, you mustn't have any faith then, Hannah. I don't know if he was joking or not, but it sure made me think. I was getting caught up and had forgotten that even though I couldn't see him, I had a God who was watching over and protecting me. Even if something fatal did happen, I'd be going to heaven. The dictionary's definition of faith is belief in, devotion to, or trust in somebody or something, especially without logical proof. In Hebrews 11 it says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for. It is being certain of what we do not see. It is an awesome thing to know that God is always watching over our lives. No matter where I am or what I'm doing, Jesus is there too. He will always be there for me. I can say I feel like a loner, and God says I will never leave you or forsake you. I can say I can't forgive myself, and God says... I forgive you. I can say nobody really likes me and God will say I love you. He has a plan for my life and everything in that plan there's a reason for. Some things I'm still trying to figure out what the reason is but I know that there is one. Uh, Hannah's, Hannah's in the year eight and uh, goes to Youth United and uh, she's a bit of a, an amazing uh, display of courage and her faith even at year eight is just awesome and um, why don't we just give thanks for what God's done in her life um, before we um, head out to be baptized um, so dear Heavenly Father we want to uh, thank you so much for the work that you've been doing in Hannah's life uh, Lord Jesus that you've just uh, really spoken to her and led her and uh, Father that she knows you deeply and we just pray Lord that, that more and more your spirit would fill her and, and live and just direct her in her life Father God, that she may grow from strength to strength in you and uh, till the day that she meets you in glory. And we all uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beautiful singing, isn't it? And uh, how could we but love and follow and serve our Lord, hey? An awesome God. And it's an awesome place to be in God's church, isn't it? Let's pray. Oh, loving Jesus, we just want to come before you now. We just want to serve you. We just want to follow you. We just want to love you. We just want to worship you. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much that you love us, that you call us by name. Lord, when we respond to that call, Lord, our life is changed forever. And Lord, 
Not only that, we join a family, a new family, and we can come together as in tonight just in full assurance that we are of one mind, one body, one church, one bride. And Lord, what a privilege, what a joy that is. So tonight, Lord, as we come to hear your word on that very subject, Lord, we just pray that everyone here would be touched by your word, touched by your spirit, that your spirit would breathe the word into our life, make it come alive, that would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, everybody loves a wedding, don't they? Don't you? <laughs> and um, particularly for me, I'm a bit excited because it's less than four weeks till there's a wedding in my family. Um, but there's something exciting about a wedding. And when I think about that, I think, well, you know, what really does a wedding symbolise? And I, I think a wedding symbolises the way life is meant to be, how God intended relationships to be. It's the expectation of a beautiful future, of things to come, of um, reproducing life. A wedding just symbolises so much. And I guess mostly we think about, you know, who's in a wedding and you know, I think the, the poor old groom gets overlooked a little bit. And yet, you know, the groom is just central to any wedding. In fact, the Bible teaches us that a man has a greater responsibility in relationships, in the marriage relationship, to a woman in the sense that he's to lead the family. And so when we think about a wedding, we... We don't want to forget the groom. He's the anchor. He's the foundation. But you know what? On the actual wedding day, guess where all eyes are turned? On the bride. <laughs> because the bride, it's her special day. It's his too, but we expect the bride to be beautiful. We expect the bride to look resplendent in white or champagne or blush or whatever colour there is now uh, instead of white. But we expect the bride to be pure, to be glorious, to be holy and just to be so radiant. And you know, the Bible teaches us that the church, the body of Christ is like a bride I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but in Revelation 19.7, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. That's Jesus. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Talking about the church. Many scriptures refer to the church as being the bride. In Matthew 22.2, Matthew 25.1, 2 Corinthians 11. I just want to read that to you. 11 verse 2. It says, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you, and he's talking to all of us, his body, as a pure virgin to him. So there are many, many scriptures, Revelation 21, 9, that talk about the church as being the bride of Christ. And tonight we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. It doesn't actually mention the bride there, but it mentions how precious the church is to Jesus. What should mark the church. And when I came to reflect upon this, I was thinking about that image of the bride. I was thinking about how when a bride walks down the aisle, we're expectant, aren't we? We're waiting. 
we're anticipating and everyone is on their best behaviour. And as I said, the bride is supposed to be radiant on that special day. That is how we are to think about the church. And Paul, in these scriptures, I guess, pleads with us to consider the bride as glorious, certainly not as a corpse. And, you know, some churches, unfortunately, are dying. Some churches are not resplendent, are not alive, are not glorious to God. And there's a reason for that as we unpack this tonight. And the reasons really fall to us, the members of the bride. The reasons uh, whether a church is alive or whether a church is like a corpse has to do not with the leadership, not with the church. It has to do with every one of us. And together we make up the bride. So tonight I'm going to be talking about three key concepts in these scriptures. The first is unity. How do we maintain unity within the bride? So important. After all, we don't want a bride on her wedding day being in fights and arguments and conflicted, do we? We expect that the bride will be just so at peace, well, maybe not at peace, <laughs> maybe a little bit um, anxious, but, but so contained, so stately. The second part that I want to look at tonight is our spiritual gifts. Paul talks about our spiritual gifts in these passages. And lastly the bride growing up into maturity. So we're to focus on three things. And it really comes down to this one question on how does our church remain as a glorious new bride? So we've been listening to Ephesians over these past few weeks and chapters 1 to 3 have really outlined for us I guess, our new identity, our new position in Christ, what it means when we become a new believer, what happens to us, how are our lives changed, how is our character changed. That's really the summary of the first three chapters in Ephesians. And now we start at chapter 4. And from chapter 4 to chapter 6, what we're really focusing on is not so much our identity in Christ, but what our conduct in Christ should be like. What is our behaviour going to be like as this new identity and as part of this body, this bride? You know, all of our blessings have been brought about in Christ. Our identity was originally in Adam. He was the first man. And it's now exchanged for our, our identity in Christ when we come to give our lives to Jesus, if that's what we have done. If you've asked Jesus into your heart, you've exchanged your old identity from the first man, Adam, to the, to the new Christ. Our close identification with the world has also been exchanged for a union with his church, the body, his bride. And you know, we cannot grow as a devoted follower of Jesus. We cannot build upon our identity in Christ unless we are anchored within his body, within his bride. So we come to look at unity and Paul says in the first verse, of Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, plead with you or entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This principle underlies 
the entire book of Ephesians, that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? Because the, the higher the calling, the higher one's conduct. This is what we're looking at tonight. And there is no higher calling than to become a part of the church over which Christ is the head and through which God brings glory to himself. There is no higher calling than to be part of this, his glorious bride. No higher calling. And when you think about it, each person here tonight who has known the Lord Jesus Christ, who has asked him into their lives and has been called and accepted him as Lord and Saviour, we must walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. So you think about the bride, it's just not enough for her to turn up to the wedding. It's no good if she walks down this aisle and she's smoking a fag. <laughs> it's no good if she's dressed in dungarees, is it? The bride has to walk down the aisle in a manner worthy of the calling that's on her life at that point. And so it is with us, every single member for us. We must walk as one worthy of the calling that has been upon us. And that calling is not only to give our lives to Jesus, but to be part of his body. And verse 2 to 3 tells us the attitudes that we should have in this calling. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Amazing words. Amazing attitudes. You know, in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, we're told we are to have the same attitude as our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Your attitude should be the same as that as Jesus, who being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So we should do nothing less than have this same attitude that Jesus had. And so why do you think Paul had to write these words about preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace when he's talking about his bride, his church? Well, because unfortunately, most of the conflict is not from without, it's from within. And it's very, very sad. In fact, it makes my heart bleed when I hear people denigrate Christ's bride. I, I, I actually can take personal criticism, but you know what? I literally can't take personal denigration of the church. I just can't take it. I can't abide it. There's something within me that wells up and I want to fight and I want to say, don't you dare. Don't you dare denigrate the precious bride of Christ. And if we all had that attitude, if we were diligent in our behaviour, in our walk, if it was worthy of our calling so that we could all build each other up in the unity of Christ, if we could display the fruits of the Spirit as it tells us in Galatians 5, humility, gentleness, self-control, patience, kindness, showing forbearance and love to each other. This is what Paul is pleading with us, as he says in verse 1, to do with each other. And Paul's words remind us 
that Christian unity doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come automatically. We'd agree with that, wouldn't we? How often do we so easily find ourselves slipping into criticism of the bride? Ah, oh, the service went too long. Ah, oh, I wish they'd sing more hymns. Ah, oh, I wish they wouldn't sing hymns. Ah, oh, I wish that. I wish this. You know, every time we complain or we make a statement about the church, we're actually causing Jesus' heart to bleed because he gave his life for the bride. A new commandment I give you, he says, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, the world doesn't offer seminars on humility, but on self-esteem and self-confidence. The world doesn't teach gentleness, but it does give instruction in assertiveness. The attitudes which Paul outlines are the attitudes which the world opposes, but these attitudes are the ones which Paul tells us create unity within the bride. But they don't come naturally to us, do they? But they come from the Holy Spirit. And we cannot have these attitudes unless the Spirit is working within us. Sin is a disruptive force. It always divides. It always separates and it always splinters. It divides a man within and against himself. And it has produced this constant fight and struggle, which we're aware of in our own lives and in the life of the church. Therefore, one of the central roles of the church in a sense, is to reunite, to bring together again, to reconcile, to restore the unity that God created before sin and the fall produced all of this conflict between God and man, between man and within man himself. So the unity that we have in Christ is part of Christ's desire for his church, his bride, and we must preserve that unity. So my challenge to you tonight is that you'll not leave here without being changed in this regard. That you'll leave here appreciating anew, or maybe even for the first time, the preciousness of the body of Christ, the preciousness of his bride, the church. Verses 4 to 6 go on to say that there is only, it's not working. Okay, look at verse four <laughs> to six. There is only one body and one spirit, just as you've been called with one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Didn't we just have the most beautiful example tonight of Hannah? And as I was listening to Hannah's story, I thought, you know, that is a whole combination. Hannah's walk is a whole combination of family influence and church influence and God influence. It's just a beautiful combination. And, and Hannah's walk which is worthy of her calling, has occurred in the context of Christ's bride. It isn't separate to it. It is an intrinsic part of it. There is only one body. Christ is the head and Christ is the body. No brain can work through a body which is split into fragments. There needs to be oneness, a oneness founded on a common love of Christ and of every part for the other. There is only one hope in our calling. You know, we are all moving towards the same goal. This is the great secret of the unity of Christians. You know, we might be different in our churches, but we have one hope. And once again, my heart bleeds when I hear people talking about 
other denominations, other churches that might be different. We have to be united as Christians, not divided. We have one hope. And you know, the bride is dying every time we walk down the path of disunity. It dies a little more each day. And you know, that's a scary thing because if we've contributed to that, we have the Lord Jesus Christ to answer to. And that's a scary thing. And there is only one Lord. There is only one faith. There is only one baptism. There is only one God. And there is only one spirit. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And it means both spirit and breath. And it is, in fact, the usual word for breath. So spirit means breath. And unless the breath be in the body, unless we collectively breathe life into the body, the body is dead. And the vitalizing breath of the body of the church comes through the spirit of Jesus Christ. There can be no church without the spirit. And we are all responsible, every one of us who have asked Jesus Christ into our heart to allow the Holy Spirit to enliven our lives so then we collectively can breathe life into the bride. And it is the bride fully alive who will impact the world for Jesus Christ. Amen. So how do we do this? How do we symbolically, together, breathe life into the bride. Well, the passage goes on to tell us... Oh, it's working now. Okay, sorry. I can't read this. The passage tells us... About spiritual gifts. (laughs) This is one way that all of us collectively can help foster unity and can help breathe life into the bride. We talked about the qualities that we needed to have gentleness, humbleness, before bearing in love to each other. They were the qualities of the members of Christ's bride. And now Paul turns to the talk of the functions of his bride. And he begins by laying down what was for him an essential truth, that every good thing a man or woman has is the gift of the grace of Christ. That goes back one. You know, unity doesn't imply uniformity. It doesn't mean that all Christians will think alike or perform identical ministries, but it does mean, unity does mean that we each have been given a gift of grace by grace and that gift we have to use. We have to use in the context of the body. There is no denying that. There is no falling down on that. We have got to use it. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace has been given to each one of us as Christ apportioned it. And then just then he goes on and talks about the type of gifts that he's given to each one of us. And Paul, in this part of uh, the New Testament, as distinct from in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, where he fleshes out all of the spiritual gifts, um, Paul only talks about a certain type of gift, which is the equipping gifts. But a summary of spiritual gifts in general, what we need to understand about gifts. Well, first of all, in verse 7, spiritual gifts are given to every Christian. So that means every single person in this room has been given a particular gift. And I've got some sheets here, which I'll ask Geordie to grab. And they're spiritual gift inventories. And I just love you to try and get rid of those (laughs) and somehow tonight before you go home or when you go home don't leave until you have filled out a spiritual gift inventory I mean every believer we're going to look at in these scriptures 
should know what their spiritual gift is. How many know what their spiritual gift is? Put your hand up. Okay. That means the majority of you have to do this exercise <laughs> because we have to know what our spiritual gifts are so we can use them in the body to build up the bride, to breathe life into the bride. And if we're not using our gifts and ministering in the body, we're not following what Paul says is his plan for his bride. So verse 7 says, every single person has been given a, a spiritual gift. And also in verse 7, those spiritual gifts are a gift of grace. So just because I've got a particular gift doesn't mean I've got another gift. And it doesn't mean you need to have my gift. In fact, basically me standing up here is quite insignificant in the sense that, you know, I'm actually preaching. It's not insignificant, but what I'm saying is don't covet this gift because all of our gifts combined build up the body of Christ, build up the bride. Verse 7 to 10, spiritual gifts are a token of the victory of our Lord over Satan, wrought by his incarnation, his work of atonement, his resurrection and his ascension. It says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So basically what they're saying here, it is Jesus Christ and what he wrought for us through the cross, through his descent and through his ascension and his, his resurrection and his ascension so that we could receive these extraordinary spirit-filled gifts. It's got nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with Christ. Spiritual gifts are not given primarily for the benefit of the individual, but they're given for the edification of the entire body. Verses 12 says, um, it was he, sorry, 11 and 12 says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's why so that the bride can be fully alive, so we can have unity. So every one of us is beholden to know what our spiritual gifts are so that we can breathe life into the bride. And spiritual gifts promote unity. They're not contradictory to unity. In verse 16, it says, From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You know, I don't know if you think about a service on a Sunday. You just think about all the different gifts that are displayed in a church service, the people that welcome, the people on the car park, the people that offer hospitality, the people that sing, the people that lead worship, the people that teach or preach, the people that pray. That's just the people that lead children and teach children. There are so many gifts that are displayed that come together to breathe life into the bride. But I also get excited by the things I hear during the week that aren't, don't occur on a Sunday, that the church, the bride is fully alive during the week. When I hear that this one went to visit that one and brought a meal or this one went and prayed with that one because they just felt God laid it on their heart to pray. Just so many stories during the week of 
Christ's bride, fully alive and fully active in a hurting world. But very briefly, let's turn to some of the specific gifts that Paul mentions. He talks about apostles and prophets. We're all not apostles and prophets. In fact, when Paul wrote this, an apostle had to be someone that literally lived with Jesus and saw his death and resurrection. So obviously they were going to die out. But they were the ones who, um, had, who would teach Christ and that would bring the power of Christ to others. They had the task of proclaiming the terms of salvation and establishing the original church. Prophets were those who didn't so much teach or foretell uh, truth from scripture, but they actually foretold what was to happen through primarily the Holy Spirit speaking directly to them. Evangelists were those whom God had enabled to proclaim the gospel so that men and women would respond in numbers. And pastor teachers, these were the ones who weren't itinerant. They were anchored in the local church. Another word for pastor or the meaning for pastor is shepherd. He or she was to shepherd the flock, to look after God's bride to teach the church about Christ and his teachings. And the aim of all of these was to equip the local church, the local body, so that the bride and the members of the bride would, go, would grow. That was the ultimate reason. So when we look at verse 12, once again, does that say verse 12? I can't. 13, go one back. <laughs> Did that go one back? I can never use this thing. I think I'm so smart. I put it on PowerPoint and then it always mucks up for me on the night because I'm technologically illiterate. <laughs> Let's go to verse 12. The aim of spiritual gifts is so that the bride will be unified, the bride will be alive. The aim is that the body of Christ be built up, that life can be continually breathed into the bride. And I want to challenge every single person here tonight, A, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, find out. B, use it, okay? It's simple. So why? Because Paul says he wants us to build up the body of Christ. The ministry to which every Christian is called is to build up the body, to breathe life into the bride. And the aim is that the church, not necessarily the individual believer, although that is a given, but that the church will grow to maturity that interesting that the bride will grow and when you think about it if we were at a wedding every day of our life and we saw the same bride coming down the aisle every day of our life wouldn't the wow factor kind of ease off a little bit our, our part of our joy in seeing the bride is what we anticipate for her future isn't it that she won't remain as she is a young woman. She'll grow, she'll mature, she'll develop. She'll partner with her husband to make an influencing life together. She'll, they will reproduce. There will be just this wonderful outcome, a future hope for. And that all comes under this heading of maturity. You know, the church can never be content that the members only live decent, respectable lives. The aim is that they must grow. And Paul goes on to say that in verse 13, 
until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And then verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. To be fully mature, which we will never reach in this life, is to reflect the son, the groom, in all aspects of our lives, our attitudes, our passions, our character, our values, our love, our thoughts, our actions, our desires, our service and our responsibilities. Many brides can walk down an aisle and on their wedding day look beautiful, but only a few are remembered for their inner beauty, their radiance. What is your growth like? Are you passionate? about becoming more like Jesus? Do you desire to grow up into the fullness of him? Do you passionately love his bride, the church? Do you see yourself as belonging to the bride? Do you desire to make her holy, pure, clean and glorious? This concept of maturity is, sent, is essential for the bride to possess if she is going to be glorious and unified. And this same concept of maturity is essential for the church to possess if she is going to be glorious and unified. So finally, how does unity occur through maturity? Well, the ultimate measure of maturity is the standard of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord calls us to be mature and that's how we become unified. The second is that through maturity we become stable. Verse 14 says that we will no longer be tossed here and there as children if we are intentional about maturing spiritually. The third measure is that we, is what might be called loving truthfulness. Verse 15 says that we need to speak the truth in love if we are to grow up in all aspects of him. And once again, one final measure of maturity is unity. Verse 13 says, until we attain to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God. Our unity grows out of our ever-increasing intimacy with the groom, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in winding up, how do we grow? Because we've got to be intentional. And that's the first step. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen. Maturity doesn't just happen. It's intentional. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worked in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We need to be intentional. Romans 6, 13 says, Give yourselves completely to God, every part of you, for you are back from death and you want to be tools in the hand of God to be used for his good purposes, to serve, to use your gifts. Number two, so number one, spiritual growth is intentional. Number two, spiritual growth is practical. Many Christians feel that spiritual maturity is so far out of their reach, they don't even try to attain to it. But we need to take the mystery out of spiritual growth by breaking down the components into practical everyday habits like prayer, reading the Bible, fellowshipping and using your gifts. So spiritual growth is practical, it's not mystical. 
three, spiritual growth is a process that takes time. Be focused and continue. It's well worth it. Four, spiritual growth is demonstrated more by our behaviour than just by knowledge alone. And our behaviour is marked by our fruit. Galatians 5 tells us that we will be known by our fruit. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc. It is impossible to have spiritual maturity and pride at the same time. And Christians need relationships to grow. We need each other. We need the bride. We need to build up the bride. We need to all work together, to use our gifts, to be aware that the most precious thing to Jesus is his bride and that there should be unity of spirit and that we should be growing. We should be intentional about that growth so that this church, this bride, can be so life-giving and can be such a power in a hurting world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it gives us life. Lord, it challenges us, every one of us. It challenges us to be intentional about unity, about using our gifts, about growing in spiritual maturity so that this church, this bride, can be glorious every day of her life. Lord, help every person here to have a heart to want to enter into this great vision. In Jesus' name, amen.